All right. Good morning, St. Paul's. Thank you for joining us today on live stream. Apologies for the technical difficulties we had earlier. The, uh, when, it, when it does that pitch shift, that seems to be something that has to do with Facebook, not with us. So um, don't blame us this time. <laughs> A lot of the time it's our fault, but that time I, I don't think that was our fault. So, Well, uh, this has been quite a news week, hasn't it? Um, maybe some of you haven't really been following it very closely, but I know for me it's been hard to, uh, to think about much else. And I want you to know that I really wrestled profoundly with what to say this morning. Uh, I would go so far as to say that I, I agonized over it. Sarah would be able to tell you that. Um, I have so many thoughts, I have so many feelings, and I'm sure many of you do as well, and many of your thoughts and feelings may not be exactly the same as mine. The violence at the Capitol building uh, this Wednesday <clears throat> was heartbreaking to me. In times like these, I find comfort in the fact that my Faith and my hope is not rooted in the United States of America, but is rooted in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I do care about this country. It's my home. And what we saw this week was evidence of sickness in this country. It was evidence of a breakdown of trust evidence of a lack of agreed-upon facts, evidence of a failure of leadership, evidence of a lack of shared norms and values. Uh, there was evidence of racism. There's at least one Confederate flag carried into the Capitol building. And uh, let's not be naive. We know what that represents. And, in a context like this. Hopefully we realize how painful something like that can be for our black brothers and sisters. Seeing the signs of this sickness pains me deeply. We need to pray for this country. And we are going to pray at the end of this message. I have a, a prayer that I prepared specifically for today. And, you know, in light of all this, I struggled with whether to just continue on with the Revelation series or to postpone it and adjust. And, but in the end, I decided, let's stick with Revelation because I think that the next chapter actually is relevant uh, for what we're going through right now. It's, uh, you know, the Spirit often arranges things that way. So uh, hopefully you agree um, with the connections I'm going to make. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 17. And as you make your way there, let me say a prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would focus our minds and our attention on you this morning. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Lord, align our hearts more with your heart. Align our minds more with truth. Father, prepare us to be salt and light in a world that needs us so badly to fulfill Christ's calling. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the woman carried me away, or sorry, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So John has a vision here of a woman who is a prostitute, and she is on a scarlet beast. She's finely dressed, uh, and she's drinking the blood of the saints, the blood of God's people. And there's a title that's written on her forehead, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon was an empire that at this point in history had fallen. It had fallen quite a while ago. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, Babylon was an example of an evil empire. And so this title, Babylon the Great, is indicating that this woman is a symbol of evil empire. Babylon was one form of evil empire throughout the Old Testament. It's gone now, uh, but now uh, it, it, it's being used, it's being appropriated um, to refer to the power of evil empire, more generally speaking. And this vision shows us two things about evil empires. It tells us something about the nature of evil empires, and it tells us something about the destiny of evil empires, the nature of evil empires, and the destiny of evil empires. Now, what it's saying about the nature of evil empire has to do with this symbol of the prostitute. And I'm going to unpack what that means in a moment. But first, I just want to acknowledge what it says about the destiny of evil empires. What it is saying about the destiny of evil empires is that they will fall. I kept the scripture reading short this morning, but if you continue to read on in chapter 17 and then throughout chapter 18, it's this long description about Babylon's fall. And that would have been very encouraging to the first Christians who, who read Revelation in the first century uh, because um, their Babylon was Rome. And this would have reminded them that the empire that they were living under, this empire that had persecuted and killed Christians, would not win in the end. Right? It was a reminder um, that evil empire eventually collapses on itself. And we need that reminder too. People in every generation need that reminder. That even though for a time it may seem like evil is winning, even though evil may go so far as to kill Christians, in the end, evil empire does not win. 
it collapses, it falls, it fails. And when Christ returns, any remaining evil empire will fall. But let's consider the nature of evil empire. Okay, what is up with this symbol of a prostitute? What's, what's the idea here? In order to really appreciate what is being communicated here, we have to remember that God often compares his relationship with us to a marriage relationship. Uh, in fact, later in Revelation, the church is going to be described as the bride of Christ. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever the Israelites turn away from God and they turn to worship idols and false gods, God describes that betrayal as adultery, spiritual adultery. In God's eyes, when we worship something other than him, it's like we're cheating on our marriage. And one of the things that this tells us is that God wants a marriage type of relationship with us. God has pledged his love and faithfulness to us, and he wants us to reciprocate. God wants us to give him our hearts and, to, and, and our trust, you know, as you would in a marriage. And God doesn't just want us to pay him a visit on Sunday. God wants us to enmesh our entire lives with him. You know, that's how a marriage works, right? He wants what you would call a covenant relationship with him. A, a, a relationship that is one of lifelong, actually eternal fidelity that is rooted on the promises that he has made to us. Covenant relationship. Now, keep that in mind when you think about this vision of the prostitute, Babylon. What this is telling us is that the empires of the world offer a false version of what God offers us. Instead of offering a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship, they offer what you might call a transactional relationship. A prostitute says, give me your money and I'll give you a cheap substitute for a real relationship. And similarly, the empires of the world say, give me your worship, and I'll give you something that you want, right? Give me your worship, and I'll give you safety. Give me your worship, and I'll give you economic prosperity, or power, or success. Now, I know as I use that word worship, for most of us, that conjures up images of being in church, you know, of raising hands and singing, of participating in rituals and that kind of thing. And those are all forms of worship. But ultimately, what giving our worship means is giving our allegiance, giving our loyalty, giving priority, giving our heart to. When we give our worship to Christ, we give ourselves to a healthy marriage. We give ourselves to a relationship of being known and loved unconditionally, a relationship of giving, covenant relationship. But when we give our worship to the things of this world, to the empires, the evil empires of the world, we don't get a covenant kind of relationship. It's like giving ourselves to a prostitute. We use and we're used, transactional. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were times where if you did not formally worship the emperor, you could get in trouble. 
You could lose your ability to participate in the marketplace. And you could really suffer financially. And so that put the Christians in that time in a really tough spot. But this vision would, would remind them, worshiping the emperor is like going to a prostitute when you are married to Christ. It's spiritual adultery. And you might think that by worshiping the emperor, you're going to get whatever you want, the safety, the security, the peace. But listen, it's not going to work. It's not. All you'll get is a shallow, transactional relationship that will eventually let you down. And maybe an STD, metaphorically speaking. Some kind of negative, unintended consequence. So, here's the way I would sum it up. <clears throat> the vision of the prostitute of Babylon is a symbol of the temptation to worship something other than Jesus. A symbol of the temptation to worship something other than Jesus, and specifically, the temptation to worship a nation, or an empire, or a political leader. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, have I been seduced to give my worship to someone other than Jesus? Have I been visiting a prostitute, spiritually speaking? It seems clear to me, and I, I'm going to say some things that some of you might not like, but I have to say what God has put on my heart. So if you, if you disagree, you want to talk to me about it sometime this week, I welcome that. But it seems clear to me, based on my observation of the last several years, and especially in light of this week's events, that there are a substantial number of people in this country who identify as followers of Christ, who don't just see Donald Trump as a president or as their preferred candidate. They see Donald Trump as God's man, as anointed, almost as a messianic figure for America. And I would call this Trumpism. Some American Christians, I believe, have been seduced to give their worship to Donald Trump. One of the first rioters that came into the Senate chamber was carrying a Christian flag. And I want to be clear, okay, I am not saying that a vote for Donald Trump in 2020 or 2016 was an act of worship to Donald Trump. I am not saying that. But when Donald Trump becomes, in the minds of many Christians, anointed, a messianic figure, a sort of savior, that's spiritual adultery. And as I looked at the images from the Capitol this week, I thought, this is what worship looks like when it goes wrong. One extreme example of this is something called the QAnon movement. If you saw the pictures and the videos of the Capitol building this week, you saw shirts and flags with references to QAnon. Uh, over the last year, the QAnon movement has actually grown tremendously. And I know of a lot of church leaders who are feeling a need to say something publicly about this movement. And I'm not even going to attempt to try and explain everything that this movement thinks. Um, 
we'd be here all day and it, it would, half of it wouldn't even make any sense. It's a hot mess of conspiracies and unfulfilled prophecies and things don't, don't make any sense. But at the root of the whole movement is this notion that Donald Trump is a sort of messianic kind of figure who's ushering in something like the end times. And I want to take this opportunity to say, if you have any respect for me, if I have gained any credibility in your eyes through my preaching, if you have seen any evidence of the Spirit of God in my ministry or in my life, I want to use whatever credibility I have to tell you, please don't get involved or swept up in QAnon. Please. It is fantasy. It's not rooted in truth. And if you get caught up in it, if you give yourself to it, it is spiritual adultery. It's like giving yourself to that prostitute. If you look at the letters of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was always correcting fads and trends in the culture at the time that were leading the church away from the gospel of Christ. Um, he corrects them about getting too focused on angels, about getting focused on genealogies and bloodlines. He corrects them about getting wrapped up in what he calls worldly philosophies, um, getting wrapped up in something that we now know as asceticism, which basically means denying yourself all pleasures in order to attain some sort of spiritual enlightenment. He corrects them on that. He, he corrects them on focusing on food regulations, on circumcision, and on and on. There's all these very um, uh, cult, you know, fads that were existing in the culture at the time that he directly confronts and addresses. And I really think that if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter today to 21st century American Christians, some of the fads that he would, he would address would be QAnon, Trumpism, and religious nationalism. All of these are forms of spiritual adultery, and indulging in them is, in a sense, like visiting the prostitute of Babylon. Any time our loyalty to a political leader becomes more important to us than doing what is right, or any time we feel like what is right and what a political leader does and says have collapsed so that there's absolutely no distinction between the two, whenever that happens, we are committing spiritual adultery. And something I noticed back in 2016 is that Donald Trump himself seemed to notice that many people had developed that level of loyalty to him. I'm sure many of you remember, you can all find the tape online, uh, the back in 2016, uh, Donald Trump was talking about the polls. And he said, the polls say my supporters are so loyal. My supporters are so loyal. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and I wouldn't lose any supporters. Now, if Donald Trump's assessment of the polls there was accurate, what he was saying, whether he intended to say it or not, 
was my supporters are committing spiritual adultery. Because what he was saying is my supporters are so loyal to me, so committed to me, that they are more committed to me than to virtue. I could do something that is flagrantly evil in broad daylight and I wouldn't lose their support. Now I recognize some of you might want to push back and say he never said that he would do anything flagrantly evil in broad daylight and I'm not saying that he did say that he would do that but what I'm saying is he was perceiving a level of fervency, a level of devotion that is religious in his supporters. And I hope that if you identify as a Trump supporter, that when you hear that characterization of yourself, you want to cry out and say, no. I hope that characterization bothers you. I hope you want to say, no, Mr. Trump. My true loyalty is to Jesus. It is to Jesus. And that means that my loyalty to you is conditional upon whether or not you do what's right. And if you were to do something as flagrantly evil as to shoot someone in broad daylight, Fifth Avenue, well, of course I'm not going to be able to remain loyal to, to you. My loyalty to Jesus would require me not to remain loyalty to you. What about religious nationalism? What do I mean by that? Religious nationalism is when we have a kind of religious fervor about our nation. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? It is good to care about our country. It's not wrong to love our country. It's not wrong to want to work for a healthy society as much as we can. But religious nationalism is, is something more than just that. It's, it's when we start to assume that God cares more about America than anywhere else. It's when we start to think of America and God's kingdom as almost synonymous with each other. You know, you might be a religious nationalist if your faith is just so wrapped up with your, your country that it doesn't feel weird at all to, you know, combine the, the cross and the flag all the time, to, to feel like... America's interests are just completely synonymous with God's interests. There was a lot of conflation of Christianity and American nationalism at that Capitol rally. And I, I look at the pictures and I see the, uh, the signs that say Jesus saves right alongside uh, the QAnon stuff and all of that. And I think, what is this doing to the reputation of my Savior? We need to recognize that God's kingdom is far, far bigger than America. Right? God is not just concerned about America. Yeah, he cares about America, but he cares about the whole world. And God's kingdom consists of people from every tribe, nation, and language. And he doesn't show favoritism. And we, we have to learn to conduct ourselves in a way that doesn't give anyone an impression other than that. If people look at Christians and what they see is just a group that's after political power in America and, and, and some sort of American glory, that doesn't represent Christ well. Spiritual adultery is something that we always have to be on guard from. 
Of course, there are so many ways to commit spiritual adultery that have nothing to do with politics. Almost anything in our lives can become an idol that replaces uh, Jesus. But I focus today on the political form of spiritual adultery. One, because I think it's what the passage is actually focusing on. And two, because I think that recent events require us to think about it this way. There is a temptation to exchange the worship of God for the worship of political powers. It has existed in every generation. It will exist in every generation until Christ returns. And God wants us to be on guard against that. Spiritual adultery doesn't just harm us personally. It does harm us personally. But it also harms our witness to the world. Jesus told his disciples that we are meant to be the salt of the earth. Now, what does that mean? I talked about this last, uh, last time in the summer, but it means at least three things. Okay, we have to remember that salt pre preserves, which means we, as Jesus' disciples, are called to preserve the good in society. Okay, wherever there's good, wherever there's beauty, we're supposed to do our part to try and preserve it. Also, salt flavors. It brings out the good taste in, uh, in things, and it, it, it just makes eating more enjoyable, right? And similarly, we as the salt of the earth are supposed to bring out the goodness in God's creation. We're supposed to enrich the world and, and enrich people's lives with our presence. And then also, salt inspires thirst, right? You eat enough pretzels, you're going to need something to drink. And we know, right, that thirst throughout the Bible is often a symbol of longing for God, right? So as the salt of the earth, we should be inspiring people to thirst for God. People should see in us the living water that only Jesus can provide. And as they see the way that we live, the way they conduct, we, we conduct ourselves, they should long for that living water. They should say, you know what? I'm thirsty, and I see in the church, and in the witness of Christians, something that will satisfy my thirst. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. But when we commit spiritual adultery, when we allow our commitment to political powers to take precedence over commitment to Jesus, we stop being salty. People stop seeing Jesus when they look at us. They don't see commitment to Christ. They see passion for a politician. They see political tribalism. You know, they see a desire to gain power rather than a desire to love. They see a commitment to a man rather than a commitment to, to God. They see something worldly rather than something holy. They see a, a willingness to, to lie in order to gain power. We are the salt of the earth. We need to act like it. And that starts by choosing to give our worship to Christ and to Christ alone. No spiritual adultery. I'm going to conclude with a prayer that I wrote last night. And I hope that these words reflect your heart before the Lord as well. Let's pray. 
Lord, there is sickness in our country. And there's sickness in your church. And we call on you for healing. Lord, we lament the violence that took place this week at the Capitol and the lives lost. And we pray against violence in the days to come. We pray against rhetoric that encourages violence. We pray that people who are not motivated by love for truth and love for justice would lose influence. We pray for discernment. We pray for truth to be known and recognized. We pray for misinformation and propaganda to be recognized for what they are. We pray for our government, Lord, that the people who run it would be guided by wisdom and love and depth of character, and that where repentance is necessary, there would be repentance. Lord, in this time where so many are confused and angry, we pray that your church would represent you well. We pray that we would not commit spiritual adultery with political powers. We pray that we would not give our worship to anyone other than you. We pray that we would allow your wisdom, your word, your teaching to influence how we perceive everything around us. We pray that we would be more committed to doing what is right than to any political leader or party or country. Lord, we put you first. May you use us as salt in this nation. Help us to preserve what is good, to contribute to greater good, and to inspire people to seek you. In our lives and politics, may people encounter the grace, the justice, the mercy, and the sacrificial love of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.